Well, welcome. Uh, we're in Matthew 13 and a chapter that is devoted to parables. And as I said last week, Jesus changes his communication strategy when he reaches an almost impasse in communicating. He's done the Sermon on the Mount and he's about to hit the wall with the religious leaders and with his own family. And at that point, he's motivated to switch gears and that's when he goes into stories. Story, parable, helps him to continue to communicate to the crowd, but in a way that is suggestive to the disciples to ask him questions later when they're away from the crowd. And so in a way, he's dividing the crowd from the disciples, the admirers from the real followers. And that's something we're always attempting to do in church, separating the admirers from the followers, but never being rude to the admirers, keeping the admirers seeking, hopefully, for that day when the light will go on, the spirit penetrates, and they're open. So Jesus gives us a model for doing our evangelism and our edification that's pretty unique in the way he develops the, the parables. This is kind of new thought to me. It was pressed by uh, a teaching experience I had, not here in Birmingham, but elsewhere, in which I just felt like I was hitting the wall with my teaching. It wasn't going anywhere. I was perplexed. I think Virginia was perplexed. I mean, it was like, how? Why? Why is it this way? And I realized that my own intuitive bent was to go to story because people are always interested in the story. And I guess if you grab them with the story, they may be motivated to kind of go deeper into the truth that lies behind the story. So um, I think that's the kind of strategy that's going on here in Matthew 13. And what Matthew collects is kind of the sermon uh, and of the parables. Um, I want to begin with prayer. I mean, I think we can all empathize with the uh, residents of Paradise, California. Um, can you imagine, you know, 27,000 people evacuating and the whole town being wiped out? I mean, that's rare. Um, I've actually been in Paradise to do a wedding for a couple that we knew in Bloomington, Indiana, and she grew up in Paradise. Uh, and we've uh, emailed her. We haven't heard. Um, she doesn't live in paradise. We wondered about how her folks were doing, who may not even still be living. But uh, you just imagine the devastation of a whole community. We live in a residential area here in Birmingham, about a thousand homes. And it's taken 10 years to develop that residential area. So you can imagine uh, the the number, the just thousands upon thousands of homes that are devastated. Uh, there's so much to pray for, isn't there? When you think, uh, if you um, if you think of prayer and that your mind often too quickly goes to daydreaming when you begin to pray, uh, just think of all the things and all the concerns and all the people uh, to pray for. Also, 
uh, in a short time, my daughter will be preaching uh, from the book of Acts at Covenant Presbyterian Church in San Diego. So uh, she's always on my mind, especially when she has this opportunity to to preach the word. Uh, So let's pray. Lord God, we do uh, pray for people in the path of the continuing fires in California. Uh, We pray for this community, Paradise, California, that has been devastated by the fires. We also pray for uh, the families and friends uh, of those that were slain in Thousand Oaks, uh, for even the very Christian testimony of several of those individuals that's emerged uh, from the stories. And we pray for their witness and comfort and for your reality in the midst of such pain and grief. I pray, Lord, also for Kennerly this morning that she might be filled with the Spirit as she proclaims your word. And now, Lord, as we have your word open before us and as we consider uh, your teaching, we ask that you would help us to grasp the truth and live in it. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. Well, uh, I still have not mastered the, the uh, effect, the good effect of outlines. I put way too many words on the page to be effective. I know that. Uh, Virginia tells me that uh, in very nice ways. Um, but you don't yeah. I guess I'm too old to change or something. I'm going to read the passage in Matthew 13. It's the parable of the weeds among the wheat, and then the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, and then Jesus' explanation. Um, Matthew's grouped, grouped all of this together, and I think it's probably close, very close to the experience that the disciples had as they heard Jesus teach. So we're reading the passage, Matthew 13, 24 through 43. Jesus told them another parable. You see the, uh, it's in the left column on the first page there. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Something you should know is that um, the weeds and the wheat would look very similar in that early growth stage. And the weed is an interesting weed because it had an intoxicating effect, somewhat like marijuana. And uh, it's actually been grown. The weed itself has been a product in some places. But... Um, Be that as it may, the wheat and the weed look alike. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And I told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took, planted in his field, and though it's the smallest of all seeds, 
Oh, it's interesting. I lived through the inerrancy debates um, back in the in the 70s and 80s, uh, where people argued at length as to whether the mustard seed was literally the smallest seed ever. Uh, what a useless and uh, debate that was. Uh, there are seeds technically that are smaller, okay, but. It's a way of speaking. The smallest of seeds would be the common vernacular understanding of the people that Jesus was speaking to. But when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants. It becomes a really 8 to 10 foot shrub that you can see uh, on the shore in Galilee. So that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour. It's enough to feed 100 people until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd. Now, the parables are kind of illustrative material. They're meant to sort of bring home the truth. But Jesus isn't giving the truth that he seeks to illustrate. So like this morning, it would be like Deborah just talking about her loving scoundrel grandfather. That's it. No text, no truth emerging from it, just the story. Now, what's interesting is if you're in the crowd, ah, the loving grandfather scoundrel, that's a good story. And you take it just as that. And it's not taken as something to illustrate a truth. Now, the explanation, or in a way, the exposition for the disciples followed out of the context of the crowd, away from the crowd. So it's interesting that uh, on one level, the crowd could be listening to Jesus and saying, why is he talking about farming? We didn't come to hear him talk about planting. We didn't come to hear him talk about wheat and weeds. But it was designed to intrigue the seeker, to ask the question. And of course, any teacher knows that a person who's asking questions that the teacher is trying to answer has a much better chance of comprehending and understanding because that question's on their mind, it's on their heart, um, than a person who doesn't have the question and you're trying to teach them. Verse 34, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now, if you all had your Bibles, this is what we do. Um, we look at Psalm 78, which is an Asaph psalm. Uh, Asaph is responsible for about 15 hard-edged, raw psalms in Scripture. He was not—he was a worship leader under David and Solomon. And he begins Psalm 78, which is a lengthy kind of salvation history psalm, collecting the history of Israel. And he opens by saying, I'm going to speak to you in parables. Now, what Asaph is doing is putting the history of Israel 
side by side with the meaning of that history. And that's parable. Parable is uh, para, belain. Belain means to throw. Para means alongside of. And so a parable is meaning that's thrown alongside. Now, Proverbs is actually the word from parable as well, from the Hebrew. So Proverbs is, in a way, a play off of the concept of parable. Um, well, what Asaph is doing is giving the meaning, giving the history of Israel and essentially saying, don't do what our ancestors did in their hardness of heart, in their resistance, in their disobedience, in their refusal to follow the will of God. And he puts these two side by side in Psalm 78. Well, Jesus is also speaking to the hardness of heart and to people who will not follow through. And what's especially important to grasp on the parables is that the central figure in the parable is always Jesus, the person who's telling the parable. He is the sower, and he is the owner who sows the seed, sows the wheat. He's the one the servants are coming to and complaining, well, who, who sowed this wheat, uh, these weeds in, uh, amidst the wheat? Uh, so that's what's important to, to understand. Uh, verse 36, then he left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. He doesn't need to add parenthetically, uh, that's me. Because he's already used this reference in relationship to himself before. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes of the field have, uh, foxes have their uh, caves and birds of the air have their nests, but the son of man has nowhere to place his head. Verse 38, the field is the world. Now, this is an allegorical interpretation, and it's one that certainly has credit because Jesus is doing it. These are the various aspects of the story that then bear a reference to truth that lies beyond the story, beneath the story. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil the evil one. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun and the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So to the disciples, he explains the meaning of the parable. To the crowd, he lets the story stand. If they're interested, I think they're going to be able to find out. Well, Letter A, let me run through this pretty quickly and then stop at various places to try to emphasize a particular point. Uh, 
Exposition without illustrations, boring, but illustration without exposition is confusing. On the surface, these simple, non-threatening parables came across as riddles in search of a meaning. But we could underscore the non-threatening nature of these parables. They're intended to illustrate truth, but the parable of the weeds kind of begs for explanation. You can almost hear the crowd saying, we came all this way to hear about baking bread. Jesus' friendly, subversive speech distinguished the disciples from the crowd. I'm always amazed at Sunday morning how people hear sermons differently. And I wish I understood why that was. How you can say one thing to one person and they get a read on it uh, that's very, very different. Uh, Eugene Peterson's memorial service was November 3rd, a week ago Saturday. Uh, he's the author of the message, and uh, you may have heard of him. He's uh, helpful to so many of us in terms of getting a read on pastoral ministry. Uh, in his memoir, The Pastor, he tells the story of Eunice. Uh, Eunice was in his congregation for 26 years. Always sat in the same place and always tore off a piece of paper from the worship folder and wrote on it in a kind of ten words or less summation of his sermon. Um, something like, uh, today's your lucky day, that would be. And she would hand that piece of paper, or don't let the bastards win, uh, she would hand this um, paper to him, um, don't be disappointed, the, tomorrow's a new day. And that, she said, was what he just had preached. That was the summation. What could have been pulled out of a fortune cookie was her summation of the sermon. He said at first that really upset him. Uh, he learned quickly not to read it in her presence but to save it until all the worshipers had left and he was back in his study. And then he'd read this one line um, statement summing up his message that he had worked seven to eight hours of exposition on the word of God reduced to uh, a soundbite that meant nothing. She never referred to God, never referred to the text, never talked about her soul. Uh, it was always just a reductionistic view of the sermon. I think that's what Jesus is facing here when he's telling these stories. <clears throat> Reserving the meaning of the story for those that really were interested, that wanted to understand. I don't know if you've found yourself spending time in church in your life in which the sermons just never did speak to you. I remember uh, a man and uh, is now a really good friend. Uh, his name is Tim Bayless. He was in our church for in in Bloomington, Indiana. He listened to me for a year and a half, bored silly. Didn't get anything out of it. And then something happened. Not a circumstantial situational change. Just one Sunday, it clicked. 
And then he couldn't get enough of the preaching of the Word. It's a mystery to me as to what triggered that change of perspective. It was nothing in the preaching, I can grant that, uh, that made it, uh, or in his life. No big crisis. And yet now he could hear. Um, and, you know, you, preachers wish they could bottle that and sell it before the service, but um, it just, uh, it's a mystery how God works in the human soul to open themselves, open them up to the Word of God. There is that dynamic that's going on. Now, if you are receiving, if you're the disciple and you're receiving this parable allegory and the owner, Christ himself, because these uh, psalms, uh, these parables are really dealing with the embodiment of the one who's speaking them. Christ himself is the real issue here. And the secrets of the kingdom, as we talked about last week, is the fact that there's a very different kind of Messiah that's coming. It's not the Messiah they were expecting. The secret of the kingdom is this suffering servant Messiah that is going to come to offer an atoning sacrifice. And all of that which was promised and pledged and, and uh, modeled within the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled in the one who is the suffering servant, who is the sacrifice. And the parable of the sower helps us to grasp that. So that's the context in which we now hear this parable of the weeds among the wheat. What is encouraging about this parable? The fact that the evil one comes along and sows wheat at night. And some of the early church fathers in talking about this parable struggled with the fact that, well, should they have stayed up and watched and guarded the field so that nobody had the opportunity to sow this, uh, these weeds among the wheat? I don't think that's the point of the story. I don't think that's a point in the story whatsoever. The servants are not being um, in any way uh, negatively referenced by the fact that they didn't stay up all night watching the field. This is just the order of things, the owner is basically saying. Uh, the servants say, well, do you want us to go pull it up? No, no. And that in a way is kind of a willed passivity. The servants want to do that, but the owner suggests you don't have to do that. No, I don't want you to do that. This comes from the evil one who surreptitiously sowed this, uh, these wheats among the weeds. Just wait. It'll all come out in the harvest. Now, what is encouraging about that? In a way, the Lord is saying to the disciples, relax. This is beyond you. And I do think, as a pastor, and I hope you as a Christian, can take some comfort in the fact that um, the Lord's giving us this space. Uh, you don't have to fret about the weeds among the wheat. You can have a positive gospel Ministry. Now, as I say that, aren't there all sorts of things that ought to go off in your mind? Well, what about church discipline? What about holding to doctrinal fidelity? What about the, um, 
the meaningfulness of keeping uh, the gospel clear in the life of the church. And I think all of that exists. And we are talking about a tension here between Jesus giving us space not to feel we have to uh, be overly judgmental. Okay, you bring up the, the second two parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And that too, I mean, he doesn't, he, interesting, isn't it? He gives the explanation for the parable of the weeds after giving these two other parables, which he doesn't explain. But I think the meaning of those two parables would have been obvious to the disciples that something really small, something really insignificant, like himself and the gospel, is going to grow into something really big and important and significant. But do not despise the day of little things, the prophet Zechariah. Live with this. Live with the fact that this is not a going to be a popular... And remember, the parable of the sower was a three-to-one ratio of uh, rejection to acceptance. Uh, and so you've got three ways that the, that the gospel is heard and rejected... And one way, the good soil understanding that uh, that follows. You're suggesting this has a bearing on parenting. It's interesting. I might want to add to that, though, that it's really important that the gospel is clear and that we're fundamentally living within the truth of the gospel as parents. Um, and I don't think that means that one is indifferent with children. Well, like you make up your own mind as you go. Um, if that's true, then we've been awful parents, Virginia and I, because we've been really definite and very clear on what we think gospel truth is. Uh, but it also allows the seeding of the gospel without a manipulative or coercive or judgmental atmosphere. And it allows the church, even in the midst of a lot of weeds, to be really positive. And certainly people are more responsive to the gospel in a context that is celebrating the gospel, basking in the gospel, living in the gospel, than one that is policing and narrow and fearful and restrictive. On a political scale, you know, Americans, I think, ought to take a, you know, this, uh, the weeds are being sown by the evil one, 
The world isn't the evil one. The evil one is the evil one. And the world is the field, the mission field. And it's in that context that we sow the gospel seed uh, without fear and without resentment. And that's something that I wish American Christians understood better, that uh, nobody's taking our culture away from us. We're not losing ground. The church is never going to go away. The church is the church. It's Christ's kingdom. Uh, relax and live into this truth positively. Now, certainly I've triggered something in your mind. What do you want to say? Well, Jesus told us to live that way, but he also said you're going to have trouble. In the world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Yeah, yeah. And a lot is said about persecution, isn't there? But can we be a persecuted body because of the positiveness of the gospel without growing resentful and fearful? I think that's the, without the anger. Well, David? That's the part of the point of this parable is that we're the wheat. We're growing up among the weeds that he could, he could end it all and we could conquer, overcome evil on this earth if he took the weeds out. But we're going to be growing among the weeds, which is the persecution, which is the fact that mm-hmm. on this earth we're going to be battled. We're going to be different than the weeds. And on the day, the coming of ages, when the, weed, the weeds are gathered and burned, then we'll survive. And that's, that's, the, uh, that's the take heart. That's the relax. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, I've overcome it, but you're going to be growing up different than these weeds but you'll be there they'll always be there and with that there's a realization of our own limitation against the evil we cannot eradicate the evil we can live faithfully within it and resist it in that sense I think in the context of what you're talking about that it it, it gives great freedom to us Um, and it's almost always not what we say or what we do but how we do it so we're going to approach whatever those items, whatever those issues are in the church, in the domination of the world, with uh, clenched fists or with open hands. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it gives great freedom to know that the responsibility is not ours, but ultimately we've read the end of the book and we know how it ends. So we can approach with strength and with fidelity, with open hands, as opposed to clenched fists. Because clenched fists never work, really. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the 18th chapter, it talks about church discipline. It talks about going to your brother or sister, and it gives us a model for how to deal with, uh, with issues. And I, I think that also applies to parenting, uh, that there is, there is a place for uh, defending the truth, uh, for countering evil, um, and that can be held in tension with this allowing the weeds because we can't prevent them. So somehow it's, it's not just straightforward, live and let live. We're not saying that. And this will cause call for a lot of discernment. Um, as Paul prayed, this is my prayer that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so you discern what's best and be filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ Jesus. If you turn your page, page over to a quote by Leslie Newbigin, a uh, 
And with this, we'll close. Uh, in the second column under number six, uh, Leslie Newbigin is a uh, just a wonderful writer and thinker. After 40 years of missionary service in India, he came back and did most of his writing in retirement. Uh, and he writes this. I think this is important. You see the italicized paragraphs. Wherever the Gospels preached, new ideologies appear. Secular humanism, nationalism, Marxism, movements which offer the vision of new age, an age freed from all the ills that beset human life, freed from the hunger and disease and war on other terms, other terms than the gospel. Once the gospel's preached and there is a community which lives by the gospel, then the question of the ultimate meaning of history is posed and other messiahs appear. So if you're starting with the process of, of uh, seeding wheat, be sure that the evil one will seed weeds. So the crisis of history is deepened. Even more significant as an example of this development than the rise of Marxism is the rise of Islam. Islam, which means simply submission, is the mightiest of all the post-Christian movements which claim to offer the kingdom of God without the cross. The denial of the crucifixion is and must always be central to Islamic teaching. The point that I'm making there is if you're working the gospel, you can expect opposition. So wherever the gospel is flourishing, the weeds will be there as well. And we live in a dependence upon the Lord. Let me pray for us. May the God of hope fill us with all peace and joy. And as we put our trust in you, Lord, May our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.